The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Thank you, Meg. This morning we have the honor of having Dr. Alan Branch as our speaker this morning. He's a professor of ethics at uh, Midwestern Baptist Seminary, except he didn't always be, he wasn't always the professor of ethics. When I was a student there, when we moved there, Adam, who was sitting back there in the sound booth, wasn't quite one yet (laughs) when we moved on campus. We were worried about Y2K bug at that time. And, and Adam and Andy and Allison and Alex, they were all pretty little too. And at that time, Dr. Branch was the dean of students while I was there, and I made a point never to meet him. I didn't want to go to the dean of students' office for any reason whatsoever. So we weren't really acquainted. But a few years later, after I graduated, we did become acquainted because he decided not only in, in, to be in academia, he decided to become an Army Reserve chaplain. And he was in my command, and in fact, he deployed with my first battalion, or my only battalion that was. So he took my battalion, and he became their, and it became his battalion, and he was a battalion chaplain while they deployed. And so he has served as an Army Reserve chaplain and uh, a dean of students, and now the uh, professor of ethics at Midwestern Seminary. And we uh, look forward to hearing what God has put on your heart this morning. Dr. Branch. Thank you, Chairman Nisley. Good morning. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. It's a real honor to be here with you. Um, I was telling some of the folks here on the front row for service, how Darren graduated and never took me for a class, I don't know. But y'all need, to, y'all need to give him some substantial grief about that. Mark chapter 5 is our text today, and I'm going to be working through the text. We're going to come to it in just a second. December 7th, 1941, as President Roosevelt said, a date which will live in infamy. Uh, two waves of bombers from, and torpedo planes from the Imperial Japanese Navy attacked Battleship Row right beside Ford Island there in the middle of Pearl Harbor on that fateful morning. And over 2,000 American soldiers, sailors, and Marines died that morning, not counting uh, civilian employees for the Navy who were working in the dockyards there at that time. And it's, it's a day which is burned into the collective conscience and memory of our nation. But on that morning, you, you remember several ships that sank, but you may not remember the USS Oklahoma. USS, most people think of the Arizona, which blew up and is still there, but the Oklahoma was torpedoed several times, and it turned upside down in the harbor. And so its hull was now facing up, and the, the mast and things were facing down. Over 400 sailors died on the Oklahoma. But a small group of sailors were able to orient themselves when that ship turned upside down, realized that they were upside down, and started climbing up. Only up didn't mean up to the the mast of the ship. Up meant you're going towards the hull now because the hull is still out of the water. And they climbed up to the bottom compartments on the bottom of the hull, which is now out of the water, and they started banging on it with wrenches and steel and pipes and anything else they could find to try to let other people know out in the harbor that they were still there and they're still alive. And the next day, December 8th, after 24 hours of work, a 
a very brave and intrepid naval shipyard worker. He was a civilian employee of the Navy. His name was Julio de Castro. Had gotten together people with jackhammers and welding torches, and they cut through that steel hull of the USS Oklahoma. And think about those men who are upside down in their ship under the water. The water is rising. The air is becoming more and more diminished. They're losing air. It's dark. It's frightening. Some of them are injured. They don't know what's going on. Their situation seemed completely hopeless, alone, in the dark, upside down, in water, injured, until suddenly they hear banging on the hull, and they hear the welding torches, and they hear voices outside, and they're cut through, and 32 men were saved from the Oklahoma when that, that group of shipyard workers led by Julio de Castro cut through the hull and brought out those soldiers. Their situation seems, or sailors, their situation seems so hopeless. One man who was there that day and observed them coming out, listen to what this guy said. He said, these poor guys had been down in that black hole, completely entombed, and when the workers got them out, you should have seen it. It was just wonderful. There they were out in the bright sun, and listen to what he said. It was just like a new life. It was just like a new life. Their situation seemed so hopeless, but a power from outside broke into their situation and brought them hope. That is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our situation was hopeless apart from Christ, but Jesus Christ brought hope into our hopeless lives. And in fact, Mark chapter 5 gives us three stories of people who were in situations that were completely hopeless from a human perspective. Mark chapter 5 tells us about a demon-possessed man. It tells us about a woman with a disease and about a little girl who had died. And the one thing all three of those situations have in common is they were hopeless. But Jesus Christ brings hope to hopeless lives. And from Mark chapter 5, you and I are going to learn how Jesus Christ can bring hope to our lives. Three stories, three dramatic transformations by Jesus Christ. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Mark chapter 5. Let's look at chapter 5 verses 1 through 20. Notice what it says. There they came to the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, sailing from west to east into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles had been broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself and gnashing himself with stones. He's a cutter. He's cutting himself. Notice his situation apart from Christ. Several things about him that show out his hopeless situation. First of all, he lived among the tombs. Did you see that? He's living in a cemetery. Now, they did not have formaldehyde like we do in our culture. And so when someone was buried in those tombs, that's where the body decomposed. That meant the stench of death was there. He lived in a place filled with the stench of death. Hey, listen, sin always destroys and sin always leads to death. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says this, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins apart from Jesus Christ. Sin leads to death. When you get away from Jesus Christ, it only leads to death. Purity dies. Your hopes for the future dies. Your dream of being someone worth something in this life dies. Your dream of going to heaven dies. Sin leads to death. Hell is what's called eternal death. And in hell, we just have death 
and death and dying and dying and sin always leads to death. Mark it down. He was living in the tombs. But he could not be restrained. Did you see that? Notice what it said about the chains. And he's some sort of uh, demonic power has possessed him and he's snapping chains in two. I mean, he is vicious, superhuman strength, but he can't be restrained. One of the things the world does is it tells us that what you need to do is abandon all restraint. Don't listen to what the Bible says. Don't listen to what God says about right and wrong, about sexual purity, about living for Jesus. Don't li- listen to all that. Abandon all restraint. Live your life any way you want to. Perhaps this idea of abandoning restraint is represented in the music world by a band called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Some of you have heard of them. I'm more of a Merle Haggard guy than the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but nonetheless, in 1995, they released an album called One Hot Minute, and on that album, they had a song called Shallow Be Thy Game. It is a blasphemous take on Hallowed Be Thy Name, and the song is full of, uh, it's an in-your-face attack on Christianity and the gospel message. And at one point in the song it says, You're not born into sin. The guilt they try to give you, puke it in the nearest bin. You know what they're saying? Don't let someone tell you you're a sinner. Don't let someone tell you you have to answer to God. Get rid of all that stuff. Puke it in the nearest bin. Abandon all restraint. However, they don't tell you the rest of the story. The Red Hot Chili Peppers had a lead guitar singer, a player named Hillel Slovak. And Hillel Slovak, like the rest of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, got addicted to drugs and died a heroin addict. Listen, abandoning restraint always leads to death. The way of Jesus always leads to life. Why would you follow the way of the world that leads to death but abandoning restraint? And then notice it says he harmed himself. Did you see what it says? He's cutting himself. Uh, There's a... Almost an epidemic of teenagers today cutting themselves. The psychologists and psychiatrists uh, who try to help them, sincerely try to, to get into their lives and help them, say that part of the reason they cut themselves is they feel so numb to life and still feel so frustrated in life, they're trying to feel something, and so they, they cut themselves. And what a tragedy to have all of life in front of you, to have the the joy and the enthusiasm of energy of youth, and yet to feel that life is so not worth living. There's no purpose, there's no reason that you must cut yourself in an effort to feel something. And that's what sin does. Sin leads to this feelings of loneliness and alienation and brokenness. He harmed himself. All these things are are so damaging. Many people harm themselves beyond just... um, Cutting themselves, they harm themselves with drugs, marijuana, alcohol. We live in a country now that wants to legalize marijuana. Colorado, you know, has legalized marijuana. People say marijuana doesn't harm you. Marijuana doesn't hurt you. Listen carefully to this preacher. Marijuana burns brain cells, and especially in adolescence, their cognitive functioning is seriously impaired. How many of you know the term pothead? It did not emerge from nowhere, and you know it's the truth. And yet we have people that say, oh, uh, what you need to do is smoke this joint. What you need to do is take some more meth. What you need to do is try this cocaine, drink this alcohol, and harming yourselves, and harming yourselves. In adolescence, drugs interfere with the process of myelination, which is so important for brain development. Drugs inhibit memory and problem solving. So he's harming himself he's cutting himself we live in a culture where people harm themselves but notice where else he is alone did you catch that he's living alone 
in the tombs. Sin always leads to loneliness and brokenness. And then notice what's happening. Why is he so alone? Look at verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and he shouted with a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? You said, I'm reading the New American Standard, and that phrase, what business do we have with each other? It is an idiomatic term in the original text, and here's what it is. You might want to write this down. You ready? What to me and to you. That's a literal translation. What to me and to you. It is an in-your-face phrase. It's almost like if you went to a Chiefs game and some guy showed up wearing a Raiders outfit and this guy had, had too many beers. I've heard people drink at Chiefs games. Have you heard that? I've heard rumors of that. But he had too many beers and he shows up and he gets in your face about the Raiders being better than Chiefs. You're not looking for trouble, but a guy with a little smack down in him might look him in the face and say, well, what to me and to you, buddy? It's that sort of phrase. You understand what I'm saying? It's an in-your-face, smack-talking phrase. What do you have to do with us? What, what, what between me and you, Jesus? What between me and you? I've knocked on doors with your pastor several times in this community in the few years he's been here. We've gone door to door. And we've met many people who were hurting and they were interested in hearing the gospel and talking to, to people about Christ. But you know, Pastor Darren and I, when we've been together, we've met people standing on their door stoop that was the very much, what to me, what to you? What do you have to do with us? I don't want to hear about Jesus I don't want to hear about God. I want to live my life my way. I don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. What to me, to you? Brazen. And then notice what happens. It says, shouting with a loud voice. What to me, to you? What do we have to do with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I implore you, do not torment me. By the way, the phrase there, I implore you, the old King James says, I adjure you. That's probably a more accurate translation you're about to find out this man's demon-possessed. These demons are trying to get the upper hand. They're trying to say, okay, we'll make sure who's in charge here. We're telling you what to do. We're telling you, leave us alone. You ever gotten in God's face? God, I'm going to tell you what I... Here's God. Here's what I need from you, God. Leave me alone. I don't need your Bible. I don't need your church. I don't need your gospel. And that's what's going on here. Well, notice what happens in verse 7. What to me to you? And then verse 8. For he'd been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? Jesus asked him, and he said, My name is what? What does it say? Legion. Over 6,000 Roman soldiers in the Roman legion. We don't know if that's how many demons are here. But the point is, the man has many demons in him. It is a military term. It implies conflict. Jesus is at war. So he's possessed by demons. And then notice what happens. That was his life apart from Christ. But then Jesus transformed his life. Look at verses 11 through 13. There was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. That's pigs. And the demons implored him saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out of the the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. About 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. Some people have gotten upset with this story. Because they say, Doesn't Jesus care about people who was making, these people who, uh, the pigs, to whom the pigs belonged? And this uh, was someone's livelihood that's died rushing into the sea. Well, that shows you where their interest is at. They're more concerned about pigs than people. But let me explain to you what's going on here. I'm going to use an example from pool. How many of you ever shoot a little pool every now and then? It's a great game. Love it. Uh, here's, here's what I would say about pool. There's two different types of pool. What most of us play is called slop pool, which is different from call shot pool. Slop pool means this. 
you don't have to call a pocket. You don't have to call the ball. You're either solids or stripes, and as long as you get one of your balls in, if you're playing eight ball, it doesn't matter which pocket you shoot it in. So a lot of us are like that. We don't know where these balls are going for certain, but what we hope is that one of them gets in a pocket somewhere, right? But real pool is call shot pool. Call shot pool says nine ball corner pocket. Call shot pool says a seven ball side pocket, right? When Jesus cast the pigs, uh, cast the swine into the sea, and he cast those demons into the swine, you know what it's showing us? Jesus doesn't play slop. He's got authority, and he's in control, and things happen the way he says they're going to happen. And let me tell you what, Jesus doesn't play slop with your life either. He's in control. He's a mighty Savior. He's a mighty God. And He transforms lives. Look what it says about this man when they came. Look at the end of this verse. Verse 15. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. If you're apart from Christ, you've been so confused, you've been so broken, you haven't been in your right mind for years, and some of you decades, and I'm telling you, Jesus Christ brings sanity where there was only insanity and chaos and brokenness. Jesus Christ transforms lives every day. He brought this man who had been demon-possessed. Listen. You've lived for the devil long enough. The devil's had your life long enough. Give your life to Jesus Christ, clothed and in his right mind with a purpose and a passion for living for Christ. Jesus Christ. That's a good place to say amen if you don't know. I need some Pentecostals to visit church every now and then to teach Baptists how to do things. So he's power over demons. But then we're going to come back to the end of that story at the end of the sermon. Jesus is asked to leave. That's what I'll tell you for right now. The people in the area asked him to leave after this guy was delivered from the demons. So he crosses from east to west back across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus used the Sea of Galilee the way you and I use interstates. I'm completely serious. It was a mode of transportation for him. So he goes from east to west. And then look, if you will, he gets off the boat, verse 21, 22, 23. As soon as he lands, there's a crowd there. And a man named Jairus, who is a synagogue ruler, had a little girl who was sick. And he asked Jesus to come heal his little girl. They're on the way to Jairus' house. A crowd is thronging around him. If you want to get an idea of the press of people, if you've ever been to a Royals game and when the game's over, you're walking down those circular stairs and just people all around you and you're bustling. It's kind of like that scene right here. Got people all around him. People just trying to touch Jesus. And something interesting happens as he's traveling along. Look at verse 25. A woman who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. The old King James says issue of blood. This is a gynecological problem. Perhaps she had an ovarian cyst which had gone off on its own and was causing her constant grief. She's bleeding. And who had endured much at the hands of many physicians. Can you get an amen in 2017? Enduring much at the hands of many physicians. The one thing I'll say in her advantage, she didn't have to deal with HMOs. Can I, I mean, thank the Lord. But, <laughs> but she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all... She had and was not helped at all, but rather grew worse. And after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garment, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Old King James said, plague. Immediately. 
Jesus perceived in himself that power or virtue had proceeded from him, had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said, You see the crowd pressing you? And you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling and aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Look at this, such a gentleman, so kind, daughter. First word is daughter. He's not angry. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction, of your plague. Notice her life apart from Christ. She is suffering on a daily basis. This is a chronic disease. Can I tell you something? The church as a general job does, as as a general rule, does a better job with acute illnesses as opposed to chronic illnesses. An acute illness is someone has had a hip replacement or had a heart attack and they're very, very sick for a short period of time and they move on to recovery. We don't do so well with chronic diseases like Alzheimer's or like Parkinson's or like ALS and things that just don't get better because sometimes we run out of what to say and what to do and she's had that sort of disease and She's probably tired of telling people, yes, I've still got the same problem. No, I haven't been any better. No, I'm not getting any better. No, things are not any better. I'm right where I was before. And people are weary of healing, hearing her stories. She'd suffered under the care of many doctors. She's worn out. She's gone everywhere looking for help. Uh, Will Rogers said this, the famous American humorist Will Rogers said, the best kind of doctor there is is a veterinarian. Because he can't ask his patients what's wrong. He's just got to know, right? Well, her doctors just didn't know what was wrong with her. And she's broke. All her money is gone. She spent it all on doctors. Notice also that this affliction that she has. Would you look at verses 29 and 34? It uses the word affliction. Old King James uses the word plague. Uh, The Greek word here means to scourge or whip. And so like a whip, this disease had driven away her strength. And she was also... Because of this particular disease she had, she was ceremonially unclean. If you don't know, in the Old Testament, if you read the book of Leviticus, someone who had this problem that this lady had was not eligible to go to the temple. She was unclean. And furthermore, if you wanted to go to the temple, but you came into contact with her, not only was she unclean, but who else was unclean? Yeah, she she made you unclean. This alienates her. People don't want to be around her. And so she's lived her life for 12 years of misery. But in faith, she heard Jesus was passing by. She heard about Jesus. And she said, if I just touch the hem of his garment. And in faith, she reaches out and touches Jesus. Her life before Christ was alone and broken and broke financially and spiritually and emotionally. But then Jesus transformed her life. Notice what happens in verse 28. Did you see this? She said, if I just touch his garments, and then verse 29, she reaches out in faith, she touches Jesus, and she's healed instantly. Listen carefully. If you don't watch this carefully, you're going to miss something in this passage. Remember, because of Old Testament law, for the previous 12 years and the problems she had, not only was she unclean, she couldn't go to the temple, but if she touched someone else, what happened? They became, they couldn't go to the temple. So she reaches out. To touch Jesus. For 12 years, everybody she touched, she made them. But when she touched Jesus, she didn't make him unclean. He made her clean. It went backwards. You know why? Because there's not one thing you can do 
to, to, to sully or to bring filth to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is infinitely pure and infinitely holy. What a picture of salvation. We come to Jesus with our brokenness and our sin and our life is unclean and lonely and we come to Him with all this pain and we come to Him and reaching out and touching the hand of Jesus. Jesus doesn't become unclean but Jesus gives us His righteousness and we walk out. Now we are children of God. You want a child? And who's the king of the universe? Jesus is the king of the universe. You know what that means? When you become part of Jesus' family, you are royalty. Oh, the world tells you your identity is found in, in your money and your possessions and how many people that you can have a relationship with and prove you're something. I'll tell you what, you want to find your identity? Your identity is found at the foot of the cross, meeting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He makes you a child of King. You are royalty. Jesus Christ brings dignity to broken lives. Well, what a, what a transformation in her life. Jesus healed from demons. Jesus heals from disease. Jesus is powerful over death. Well, remember, he's on the way to Jairus' home. He stopped and met this little lady, and then something happens. Look at verse 35. Uh, Verse 35, here's what happens. I'm sorry, my Bible got flipped. I got so excited, it flipped over to chapter 6, and I was confused for a moment. While he was still speaking... They came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Anybody ever told you that? God can't fix your problem. Don't trouble. Don't even go to church. Man, what are you doing? Some of you have lived lives far away from God. And just this week, you had a friend tell you, I know you're going to that church Sunday morning. Ah, yeah, God can't fix you. We know where you're at. You'll be back with us. Yeah, you know, you'll be back with us. You You just do that for a little while. Well, that's the attitude they have right here. Came the house of the synagogue official. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was spoken, said to the synagogue official, to Jairus, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Listen, Jairus has gone from from panic and fear for his daughter. Now he's in grief. She's dead. She's dead. Sin always leads to death. We saw this with the demoniac. He's living in the tombs. Now this little girl has died. And sin leads to death. It is a proven government fact. Millions of dollars have been spent to prove that one out of one people die. And sooner or later, you are going to die. And listen, Jesus Christ prepares people to die. This life life is so brief. The Bible says this life is like... um, The mist that comes up in the morning and is gone with the noonday sun. The Bible says this life is like grass that blooms in the spring, but when the summer heat comes, it turns brown and it's gone. It's it's brief, it's fleeting, and death is coming. And there's only two places, it's heaven and hell. Death is coming. Are you ready to die? See, Jesus Christ not only teaches you how to die, but listen, here's the good news. He teaches you how to live. teaches you how to live today. He teaches you how to die It's so hopeless, so broken, they go to the home. And notice what happens in verse 39. Jesus enters the house. He says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Probably professional mourners are there. Can't prove that, but these may have been people who are paid to mourn. Kind of like uh, being uh, a New York Jets fan, I suppose. But nonetheless, they're paid to mourn. And and when commotion and weep, and the the child had not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Ah, ah, ah. And you've had some people laugh at you about your life, that Jesus is going to change your life. 
But Jesus putting them all out. By the way, the phrase putting them out is rather tame. It's the same term that's used in other places about pushing. And No, I'm in control here. Take your laughing and your lack of faith and leave. Putting them all out. He took alone the child's father and mother and his own companions. He entered into the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, interesting phrase here, Talitha kum, it's Aramaic. The gospel of Mark, we are told by early church fathers, comes to us from Peter via Mark. And so you can almost see Peter looking back years later. He said, we went in the room and he touched her hand and he said, Talitha kum. That's an Aramaic phrase. It means little girl. It's a tender phrase. Daughter, little girl, get up. Little girl, get up. It's a picture, and notice what happens. It's a picture of what happens when we're saved in the resurrection. In verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astonished. I guess so. Jesus has authority over death. This is a picture of our life before Christ. Jesus saves us, and your life may have been characterized by death and pain and heartache, but one touch from Jesus. Listen, you know what you need to learn from the end of Mark chapter 5? Nothing stays dead in the presence of Jesus. And your life may have been dead and broken, but one touch from Jesus brings life. Jesus is passing by today, and He's ready to touch somebody's life today. Jesus is passing by today. He's ready to to cleanse and forgive and to change your life. Jesus is passing by. Oh, what good news since Jesus passed by. Since Jesus passed by. Oh, what a difference since Jesus passed by. I can't explain it, and I cannot tell you why. But oh, what a difference since Jesus passed by. This also picture of our resurrection someday there's going to be a resurrection i'm going to get a new body i turned 50 this year i'm looking forward to the resurrection can i get an amen i'm getting a new body i'm going to get a new body and uh, the bible says that there's going to be a trumpet call of god and a shout and there's going to be the word from the lord and jesus is going to call us up from the dead first corinthians 15 says we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed In a moment, in a twinkling, at the last trumpet, for the trumpets will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. There's going to be a resurrection, but you have a taste of it when you get saved. Do you know that? You get a taste of it. See, eternal life doesn't begin when you die. Eternal life begins when Jesus takes over your life. It's a new and a better life. Oh, what glory. Jesus delivers a man from demons. Jesus heals disease. Jesus has authority over death. But did you notice a discordant note in the passage? I skipped past it. But some of you who know your Bible, I I skipped over a few verses. There is, in the middle of this triumph of Jesus in Mark chapter 5, there is a discordant note. Can I show it to you? Look at verse 16. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore Jesus to leave their region. What? This man had been possessed by demons, scaring everyone, terrifying the community. He's changed by Jesus Christ, and their response is not, we want to hear more. Their response is, we want you to leave. And notice what it says. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him. They might accompany him. They put him on a boat and made him leave. They didn't want Jesus around there because Jesus had shown up and done something miraculous. And I can't prove it. I've looked at the original text, and I can't prove what I'm about to say. But I have a very strong suspicion that that crowd of people who were afraid of what God can do in someone's life 
After that gathering, demoniac had been transformed and legion was no longer legion. He was now a follower of Jesus Christ. And that crowd made Jesus get in the boat and leave. I am convinced, I can't prove it, but I'm pretty convinced that that group got together and formed the First Baptist Church of Galilee. Well, we don't want Jesus to take up. You know how you're going to tell the Baptist when we get to heaven? They're going to be around the Crystal Sea saying, Robert's Rose of Order, Robert's Rose of Order. <laughs> oh, what you'll really know, they'll be in the back going, I, I, where's the bulletin? Just worship the Lamb. Where's the, worship the Lamb. Where's the bulletin? Just worship the Lamb. That'll be the Baptist in heaven. Baptists are afraid when God gets hold of a church. Some of you have been more worried about what goes on the business meeting. I have been at business meetings where we stuck 40 minutes talking about what we're going to do with the cemetery. 40 minutes talking about what we're going to do with dead people as opposed to what we're going to do with people who are spiritually dead and heading to eternal death. My word, don't you want something more than one more business meeting, one more committee meeting? Don't you want God to get loose in your church and the Holy Spirit to come down and people to be saved and lives to be transformed and your church to explode and to grow and the secular people are shaking their heads? We don't know what's going on. It's called revival. God comes down. Don't you want something more than just a bunch of Baptist bureaucracy? Don't treat the church like a poor man's country club. It is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven after the lost. Get behind your pastor. Support soul winning evangelism. Get behind the gospel. Don't forget the Great Commission. Well, I'm so glad Jesus Christ changes lives. Somebody say amen. Jesus Christ changes lives. There's this guy named Macklemore. He came out with a song a few years ago. I don't listen to a lot of Macklemore, but I know this one is. Uh, the chorus of the song says this, I couldn't change even if I wanted to, even if I tried. I couldn't change even if I wanted to, even if I tried. That's a lie. Jesus Christ changes lives every day. That's biological determinism. You're more than a bunch of DNA spun together. You're more than a bunch of chemicals who've learned to react. You've got a soul, and Jesus wants to save your soul and change your life. Jesus Christ changed lives every day. I'm so glad Jesus changed my in-law's life. At a watch night service on a New Year's Eve, about 45 years ago, my in-laws, far away from Christ, Junior and Tink Swan, hear the gospel, and they're transformed. And my wife grew up in a Christian home where Jesus was Lord. I'm so glad Jesus changed my grandparents' life. My, my grandmother and grandfather Branch were far away from God, and their marriage was chaos, and their marriage was a wreck, and they had what they called a brush arbor service out in the country. And my grandfather got saved, and my grandmother got saved saved and Jesus changed their life and all I knew as a little boy were these sweet people where Jesus was Lord of their home and they loved Jesus and they loved me. I'm so glad Jesus changed my family's life. My mother is a child of a uh, an unwed mother in rural Alabama in 1946 and she got saved and Jesus gave her hope and purpose when everybody told her her life was meaningless and nothing. I'm so glad Jesus changed my father's life. He's in the Air Force down in Texas and he gets saved and I grew up in a home where people told me about Jesus and I'm so glad Jesus changed my life. I'm telling you, I'm glad Jesus changed my life. 18-year-old man far away from God, hurting other people, self-centered, everything revolved around me, and I was a dangerous person to be around. And Jesus Christ, a preacher preaching through the book of Leviticus on a Sunday night. That doesn't fit anybody's church growth formula. And I was, and Jesus Christ changed my life. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ took hold. And let me just tell you, the next two years, it was like three steps forward, two steps back. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Two steps forward, one step back. But Jesus had made a difference. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ changed lives. And he changed my life. And Jesus Christ can change your life. He can change your life. He does it every day. You may have felt that your life was hopeless and you had nothing to live for. 
I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Brother Gilbert's going to come.